Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in John's Gospel, John chapter 21, John 21, and reading verses 1 to 3. John 21. We read, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Is Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. This week, I came across uh, the following quote. The writer says, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. The fears that my parents had had for me, and that I had had for myself, had both come to pass. And by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. I was the biggest failure I knew. That quote is from the best-selling author J.K. Rowling, a woman whose net worth is now valued at over $1 billion. But she's a woman who has known what it feels like to fail to be perceived as a failure. Today we're continuing our studies in the life of Peter and we're looking at the way that the Lord goes about restoring him following his failure that we looked at three weeks ago. We're looking at these verses that we read earlier under three headings, a fruitless expedition, then a friendly direction, and finally a free invitation. First, a fruitless expedition. Look at verses 1 to 3. Here John focuses on the failure to catch any fish. John begins by giving us the context in verse 1. Now before proceeding, it's important to remember the events that are leading up to this verse. John 18 recorded the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. John 19 recorded the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. John 20 recorded the resurrection and first appearings of Jesus. And now John writes in verse 1, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. This narrative is all about Jesus manifesting himself to his followers, to his disciples. It's all about the revealing of the Lord of glory in time and space. And that revealing takes place by the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, the scene of so much of Jesus' early ministry. We can move from the context to the companions in verse 2. John tells us who had gathered together. We have Simon Peter, this Galilean fisherman, the, the unofficial spokesman for the group, a man who had denied with curses that he even knew Jesus. We have Thomas, a man who loved Jesus, but who was who was struggling to come to terms with actually believing that Jesus was really risen from the dead. We have Nathaniel, a man who hasn't been mentioned in John's Gospel since John chapter 1, a man who is always just there in the background, 
We have the sons of Zebedee, James and John, two hot-tempered brothers whom Jesus gave the nickname Sons of Thunder to. And finally, we have two unnamed disciples who had fled into the night on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested. And so in looking at these men, we can note something that is very significant about each of them. They had all been followers of Jesus and each one of them had failed. Some had denied him. Others had doubted him. The rest had deserted him. But each one of them had failed the Lord in some way. And we can move from the companions to the catch in verse 3. Peter speaks and he tells the group that he's going fishing. For three years he had followed Jesus and he had engaged in the work of mission and outreach and evangelism. But now he decides to go back to Galilee back to his old stamping ground and he decides to go back to fishing back to his old job and he tells his companions about the decision that he has come to his mind is made up you know whenever I make up my mind about something I tell other people about it just so that they hold me accountable and that's Peter he's saying I'm giving up the ministry and I'm going back to my old job back to my own town and he's telling other people about this And the rest of the group tell Peter that they will go with him. Perhaps they were all former fishermen. We know that James and John were uh, former fishermen, that they were members of the Zebedee and Sons fishing business. And now they decide to accompany Peter as he returns to the fishing business. That is the effect, that is the influence that Peter is having on these men. And can I just say at a very practical level... That if if you are negative, if you are having a negative outlook on things, it's quite contagious. It starts to spread around the place, doesn't it? I I sometimes joke with some people, I'm not going to mention them by name, but but you know, when when you're a glasses half full person, that half full glass will start being passed around other people. And there's Peter, glasses half full, and he's starting to impact and influence the rest of those with him. But their fishing trip, we read, is fruitless. It's a dismal failure. We read that they went out, they got into the boat, and they caught nothing. Now just put yourself in Peter's shoes or sandals for the briefest of moments. He has failed as a disciple, a follower of Jesus... And he's now trying to prove that at least he can catch a few fish. And he's failing in that. As we consider these verses then, friends, we are being given a clear picture of failure. A clear picture of failure. That is what we see in John 21. Peter and those with him have failed as followers of Jesus and they have now just failed as fishermen. If you were to ask these men to sum themselves up in one word, each of them would turn to you and say, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. And this passage is given for every person who has ever failed. And not just those who have failed in some task, those who failed in a work assignment, those who failed in a sporting event, those who failed in a relationship, those who failed in an exam. This passage is for those who have failed when it comes to following Jesus. It's for people who profess and promise their loyalty and commitment to Jesus and then they let him down through something that they said, something that they thought, something that they did. 
It's for people who feel like that they've blown it and that there is no way back for them. It's for people who are burdened and crippled by that unrelenting sense of guilt and shame. It's for people who get up each morning and that little voice is there in the back of their heads saying, you failed your Lord. In fact, is he even your Lord? It's for people who, when they close their eyes at night, can remember that moment when they fell and failed as if it were only yesterday, as if it were only minutes ago, when it maybe happened decades ago. It's for people who have written themselves off, people who feel like they can never move on. Can I say today, friend, that if you're sitting in this building and you feel like a failure, this passage is for you. If you feel like a failure as a Christian, if you feel like a failure as a follower of Jesus, this passage is for you. We move though from a failed expedition to a friendly direction. Look at verses 4 to 8. John now focuses on the miraculous catch of fish. In verses 4 to 6, John records the appearing of Jesus. We're told that day was breaking and that Jesus stood on the shore. Verse 4. The night of failure gives way to a new dawn. And on this new day, Jesus comes to his disciples. In his book, When We Get It Wrong, Dominic Smart writes, Jesus goes to meet Peter where he is. He gets down with him when he is down. Not standing over him and sticking in the spiritual boot. Not crowing over him saying, I told you so. The devil does that. The devil will make you squirm. The devil will kick you when you're down. The devil will pile guilt upon guilt, reminding you of past failings that you know are forgiven. Dredging up old sins that you had forgotten about because they were dealt with and you had moved on. But God never will. If the story of Peter teaches us anything at all, it should teach us for our own reassurance and the comfort of our souls that when we are down in the depths, even when God has placed us there, Jesus goes down into the mire to lift us out. Don't you love that? Jesus goes down into the mire, into the pit, to lift his people out. That's the gospel. The gospel doesn't say to people, come on, get your act together, sort yourself out. The gospel says Jesus has come to reach down to those who are in a messy situation, an unpleasant situation, a sinful situation. And he goes down into that situation to lift them out. That's the gospel. But the disciples don't know that it's Jesus who's standing on the shore. We're then given the conversation between Jesus and the disciples. Look at verse 5. Jesus opens with a question. Children, do you have any fish? The question is framed in such a way to expect a negative answer. Jesus is saying literally, guys, you don't have any fish, do you? And they reply with a one-word answer. No. Nothing more to say. Nothing more that needs to be said. And so we come to the response of Jesus. Verse 6, he gives them a friendly instruction. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. The disciples do so and the net fills with so many fish that they're unable to haul it into the boat. It is a miraculous event. It is a supernatural event. You, You cannot explain this event without appeal to the sovereignty, the divinity of Jesus. 
Then in verses 7 and 8, John records the reaction of the disciples. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is the first to react. Look at verse 7. He's the one who had entered the empty tomb and had believed that Jesus was risen from the dead. And he now gasps, it's the Lord. He's got that level of spiritual perception. And upon hearing this, Peter bursts into action. Look at verse 7 again. John might be a man of spiritual perception. Peter is a man of action. And we read that when he heard John saying, it is the Lord, he put on his garment and threw him into this, himself into the sea to get to Jesus. I love that. There's no sheepish hanging around with Peter. There's no embarrassed holding back with Peter. He has already met the risen Jesus in the upper room. He has already seen the risen Jesus pierced hands and pierced side. He has already heard the risen Jesus saying to the disciples, Peace, the blessing of God be upon you. And now nothing and no one is going to keep him back from Jesus. Not the waves of the sea, they won't hold him back. And not the words of the other disciples, they won't hold him back. I often think that waves of the sea won't keep me back from Jesus. But sometimes, sometimes the words of other Christians can keep us back. But nothing will keep Peter back from Jesus. He just throws himself in. And the rest of the disciples make their way to Jesus. Look at verse 8. John tells us that they were in the boat. John tells us that they were dragging the net that was full of fish. And John tells us that they were about 100 yards from land. A little eyewitness detail. Uh, Friends, as we consider these verses, we are being shown the indispensability of Jesus. The indispensability of Jesus. That is what we see in John 21. Peter and those with him have failed as followers of Jesus, and that is to be expected. But they have also failed as fishermen, a skill that they had known from childhood. And Jesus enters their situation and blesses them with this great catch of fish. It's a clear illustration of the truth that Jesus had told them back in John 15, where he had said to them, without me, apart from me, you can do nothing. Even the best skills that these men amount to nothing without the blessing of Jesus. Jesus is showing Peter and those with him that the power and the effectiveness of the future ministry that he will call them to will come from him and from him alone. And that is so important for us to remember today. Without Jesus we can do nothing. Without Jesus, we can do nothing as individuals. And without Jesus, we can do nothing as a congregation. Bruce Milne writes, The church in the Western world has never had such an array of helps, resources and methodologies as at present. The psychological and sociological sciences, as well as the fruits of the technological and communications revolution, have been plundered for secrets of successful mission. Sadly, although much time and money are often spent acquiring these tools or attending the inevitable conferences and seminars where they are unveiled, the long-term results are commonly meagre. One recent responsible survey of the Evangelical Church in a major Canadian city showed that after the dust has settled on the often frenetic struggle to employ successful strategies of evangelism, 
These congregations reach on average 1.9 genuine outsiders for Christ each year. You can have all the technology. You can have all the buildings. You can have all the resources at your disposal. But without Jesus, you can do nothing. Jesus, friends, is indispensable and he is essential for us as a congregation. With all the projects we're involved in, all the plans we're involved in, all the proposals we're involved in, we need Jesus. He is indispensable and essential when it comes to us just living the Christian life and sharing the Christian gospel among our friends, among our families, among our neighbours. You know, I look at people, I meet them in town, I meet them in the co-op, I meet them in Tesco, and I think I would love to share the gospel with them, but I can't unless Jesus gives me the ability to do so. He's indispensable and essential when it just comes to even our, our daily business. Our work in the home, our work in the school, our work in the office or wherever we might be placed. Without Jesus, friends, we can do nothing. But with Jesus, we can do anything. And I really hope that is an encouragement to you today. If you're sitting here today feeling empty, if you're sitting here today feeling inadequate... These verses are reminding you that you're the kind of person whom the Lord loves to use. If you're sitting here today thinking, I would love to do something for Jesus, but I've got nothing. These verses are saying, you're the kind of person the Lord loves to use. Or if we're sitting here today as a congregation and we're feeling empty and inadequate, then these verses are reminding us that we're the kind of congregation whom the Lord loves to use. The Lord's not interested in congregations that are going about saying, well, we've got X, Y, and Z, and we can do it all on our own. But when a congregation comes saying, we don't know what to do, and our eyes are on you, the Lord says, I can work with that. Ray Ortland puts it like this. Jesus says, you feel overwhelmed, you feel frightened, you feel threatened. Don't worry. When you're defeated, I'm victorious for you. When you're confused, I'm clear-headed for you. When you're fearful, I'm brave for you. My glory is upon you now. Give your weakness to me and I will give you my power. So friends, let's not be ashamed to go to Jesus with our weakness. Let's not be ashamed to go to Jesus with our emptiness. Let's not be ashamed to go to Jesus with our frailties. Let's not be ashamed to go to Jesus with whatever limitations we might have, knowing that when we are weak, he is strong. And, and when we don't know what to do, he is more than able. In fact, he is not just more than able, he is indispensable. Third and finally, we come to a free invitation. Look at verses 9 to 14. And John now focuses on the aftermath of the catch of fish. In verses 9 to 11, we see the provision. We can begin by noting the provision of a meal. Look at verse 9. We're told that the disciples got out on land and that there was a charcoal fire. We're also told that there was bread and fish on the fire. Doesn't that seem to your heart good? Here is this group of tired men, this 
group of hungry men, these men who, who have been fishing all night in the cold, and Jesus thinks to himself, they don't need a sermon, they don't need a seminar, they don't need a Bible study, these men need a hot meal. He's got it provided for them. And we can also note the provision of fish. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus now speaks and he instructs the disciples to bring some of the fish that they have just caught. Once again, quoting Dominic Smart by asking them for some of their fish. He's reminding them that what they were called into was partnership. Jesus could have impressed them with a virtuoso display of fishmongering. Dazzled them with culinary master. Jesus could have had a barbecue with a full breakfast at the mere snap of a finger. But he doesn't. Instead he puts some fish there. And then says I'd like your fish too. It's a delicate, deft and beautiful reminder. That Jesus wants them to be partners. Co-workers in the task of fishing for more disciples. Do you think that Jesus couldn't do spectacular things all on his own in your town, among your colleagues, your neighbours, your friends? Couldn't he turn on a virtuoso display of evangelism? Of course he could, but he wants your partnership. And Peter is the first to act. You know, I've met so many Christians over the years, Christians who have failed the Lord in some way, and they now feel like they can do nothing more for him. They feel like the Lord is finished with them. But here's Peter. And the Lord says, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And Peter springs into action. And Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute, Peter. You failed me. Uh, can, can James and John not get some fish for me? Because, Peter, you're a bit of a write-off right now. Oh, no, no. Jesus receives the fish from Peter. And John records some details about the fish. John's a bit like Donnie Rankin. He likes to know how many fish he's caught and what kind of fish he's caught. So he says, I I caught 153 fish and and they weren't just wee tiny piddly ones. They they were large fish. And he tells us that somehow the net wasn't broken while holding them. Then in verses 12 to 14, we move from the provision to the invitation Jesus gives the disciples an invitation, verse 12. The first words that Jesus now says aren't, wasn't that some miracle, guys? The first words that Jesus says aren't, how's it going, failures? No, the first words that Jesus says are, come and have breakfast. It's an invitation to eat together. It's an invitation to have a time of friendship and fellowship together. These men have doubted him. These men have denied him. These men have deserted him. And Jesus says, I want to spend some time with you guys. But there's a hesitation on the part of the disciples. They don't ask who it is. They they know who it is. They know that this is Jesus, but they're uneasy. They're a bit afraid. And so Jesus lovingly and graciously takes the initiative. Look at verse 13. He comes, bridging the gap between the disciples and himself in the same way that he bridges the gap between heaven and earth, God and man. He then takes the bread, gives it to them. Takes the fish, gives it to them. He has prepared the meal for them. He is now serving the meal to them. And John closes this section by saying that this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. 
Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being reminded that Jesus is the Saviour who issues invitations. He's the Saviour who issues invitations. That's what we see in John 21. He looks at these tired, hungry men who have failed him. Men who've doubted him. Men who've denied him. Men who have deserted him. And he says to them, come and have breakfast. Let's spend some time together. And that is so important for us to remember today. Jesus is the Saviour who issues invitations. The Saviour who calls and invites those who have fallen, those who have failed, those who are feeble, those who are fragile, those with baggage, those with a background to come. That's his invitation to you if you're here today and you're not a Christian. Jesus says, come. He doesn't say, come on and sort out your life. He doesn't say, come and get your behavior sorted out. He, He says, come. Come to me. Come and receive all that I have purchased, prepared, procured for my people in the gospel. Come. You know, just imagine for a moment... Just imagine it in your mind's eye. Imagine Peter standing there on that day, shivering, tired, hungry, a failure. And imagine Jesus coming up to Peter and saying to him, Come and have breakfast, Peter. And imagine Jesus holding out that bread and fish with his nail-pierced hands to Peter, saying, Come on, Peter. Let's spend some time together. And just imagine Peter turning away and saying, I don't need or want you and your miserable fish. My friend, that is doing, that is what you are doing every time you resist and reject Jesus' offer to come. You're saying, I don't need or want you. And I don't need or want anything that you have provided for me. And I hope today, friend, that you can see this. Maybe for the very first time, what you are actually doing. And I hope that today would be the day when you finally say, Lord, I am coming. I am coming. I've got nowhere else to go, no one else to go to. I am coming, Lord. But this is also his invitation if you're here today and you are a Christian. Perhaps you're sitting here today knowing that you've, you've grown weary in his service. Perhaps you're sitting here today knowing that you have wandered away from him. Perhaps you're sitting here today and you're looking back at times when you were once so full of fire for him, full of enthusiasm for him, full of zeal for him. You wanted to be at everything where he was magnified and made much of. You wanted to magnify and make much of him in every single way. But now you feel like you're just going through the motions if you're going through the motions at all. And Jesus says to you, my friend, come. Come and receive all that I have prepared, all that I have procured, all that I have purchased for my people in the gospel. He says, come. Come. Don't don't stay where you are. Just come. And so, friends, in the light of these words, come and have breakfast, I want to ask you one final question. What are you doing with the risen Saviour's free invitation?
Christian brothers and sisters, what are you doing with the risen Saviour's free invitation, come? And my friend, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, what are you going to do with the risen Saviour's free invitation, come? So full, so free, and he now leaves the ball in your court. Let's pray. O Lord in heaven, we thank you and bless you for your word. We thank you that there is a word for your people when they feel that they have failed, when they feel that they have fallen. And we thank you that there is a word for those who feel that they could never be your people because of their baggage, because of their background, because of ways that they don't feel that they squared up to your standards and your laws. And we thank you that that word is found in Jesus' free invitation where he simply says, come. And we pray that each and every one of us here today might be hearing that invitation, that we might hear it clearly, that we might hear it loudly, and that we would know that we can indeed come. And that we wouldn't simply know that we can come, but that we would come and know the blessing of restoration that is found in Jesus, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.